Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Moshe Hoffman. He's a research scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Biology. He's a research fellow at MIT Sloan School of Management and a lecturer at Harvard's Department of Economics. His research focuses on using game theory, models of learning and evolution, and experimental methods to decipher the motives that shape our social behavior, preferences, and ideologies. His newest book, co-authored with Erez Yoeli, is called Hidden Games, The Surprising Power of Game Theory to Explain Irrational Human Behavior. Welcome, Moshe. Thanks. Thanks, and Thanks so for coming on. In his book, oh, I hate when people start like commenting. Hold on. Okay. So in his book, Moshe writes, game theory is a mathematical toolkit designed to help us figure out how people, firms, countries, and so on will behave in, very, in, in, inter in interactive settings. When it matters not only that they do but also what when it matters not only what they do but what others do the toolkit has been successfully deployed to help firms design and bid in auctions where each bidder should where each bidder should bid uh as where how each bidder should bid depends on others' bids. It is also a cornerstone of federal antitrust regulation at the Federal Trade Commission and U.S. Department of Justice. Armies of economists spend their days evaluating proposed mergers and acquisition and acquisitions with the help of a game theory model co called corn-out competition, which helps them predict how prices will change, taking into account that all firms in the market will react to what, he, what the merged firm does and vice versa. A few blocks away at the U.S. Department of State, game theory has influenced the thinking of generations of diplomats. For instance, the United States Cold War strategy of mutual destruction and nuclear brinksmanship mm -hmm. was reinforced by the game theoretic analyses of Thomas Schelling. So Moshe, to begin with this, what is game theory? What is game theory and how does it apply to our sort of everyday lives and how we make decisions and pretty much what we do? Hmm. So, okay, let me try to break that down into two steps. Um, so first is like the kind of game theory used in those applications you just read about, um, like in, in the Cold War or, or in what the Federal Trade Commission uses. Mm -hmm. So there is just kind of uh, models for how consciously rational, highly strategic, uh, smart people with a lot of you know money on the line might behave. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Kissinger used it to, to study mutually assured destruction. And it's just, um, you know, there is just kind of mathematical models um, that are meant to help us understand uh, strategic behavior, strategic behavior, particularly in settings where there's multiple strategic agents interacting, like in the Cold War, you had, you know, the US and the USSR, each kind of, you know, plotting what to do, taking into account that the other's going to kind of best respond. Um, and so, so the models are, are meant to help us capture those dynamics. And the best models are kind of really simple ones that, uh, you know, really shed insight or, or give valuable prescriptions for settings like that. So, you know, the classic one from the Cold War, mutually assured destruction, mm. you know, this is Henry Kissinger had this I idea that like, well, uh, if we have big nukes, uh, uh, you know, then even if we don't use them, the fact that we can retaliate with them can deter uh, Russia from using them. And if they have them too, they can use the same logic and that could prevent the war from going hot. And so kind of counter counterintuitively, uh, us having these big scary weapons can actually uh, have some good, namely could prevent, you know, two major superpowers from repeating World War II. Right. So that's, you know, one idea that comes out of, you know, a game theory analysis there, there the logic is, you know, I'm thinking, well, they're not going to want to, you know, commit suicide. Uh, and so that could, 
you know, then if they know that we have these weapons and we'll retaliate and, and so on. So you're kind of doing this logic of like, what's called backward induction. You're kind of, uh, you know, thinking inductively, but, you know, from the, you know, what would cause them to want to retaliate? Okay, then I shouldn't do that. You know, this kind of logic that True. you could write down a, a simple model for, fine. So that's that's what game theory does best. It helps us understand strategic settings like that. Okay, what we're doing in the book is something slightly different. Um, and you might have seen kind of analogs of it or, or instances of it if you've read uh, some bio books or, or, or thought about animal behavior, you know, like if you read Richard Dawkins. Mm -hmm. So he'll use game theory or he'll cite a lot of other people like, like uh, Maynard Smith and, and Zahavi and uh, uh, Hamilton and Trivers. These are people who use game theory concepts to study animal behavior, puzzling things like animal territoriality. Or, or sex ratios, the fact that it, in most species, the, the ratio of males to females is about 50-50. Mm -hmm. um, or, 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 you know, the peacock tail. Um, so these are, or, or, or the evolution of cooperation. So these are things that, that to biologists were all quite puzzling, but with some simple game theory models, kind of analogous to the mutually assured destruction model, you can explain these behaviors. Now, now the, the key thing that's different is uh, you know, there's not a bunch of um, uh, animals sitting in a boardroom calculating what's the optimal way to respond. You know, there's no conscious, strategic, rational behavior. What there is, is, is biological evolution is doing the, the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So game theory just kind of requires that you're in a social setting and that there's something doing the optimizing. But, but that optimization could be smart people in a boardroom or it could be some dynamic optimization process like like as is the case with, with natural selection um so so natural selection could lead to all these uh interesting traits or behaviors that are consistent with the logic of game theory even if no animal is consciously calculating you know what's optimal or best response right um, and just a question when, when we say optimization do we mean that personally interpersonally or in a group setting or all three well we mean and it kind of depends a little bit on what the, the process is. So, so mm -hmm. when you consciously calculate what to do, um, you know, you might be calculating what would make you the most happy. Or if you're in a boardroom, you might be calculating what would bring, you know, your firm the most profits. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, Henry Kissinger might have been calculating what's best for the U.S. or maybe what's best for his career or, you know, I, I don't know. Okay. So, so sure. what exactly is being optimized might, might vary a little bit. For biological evolution, it's pretty obvious what's being optimized. That's just fitness. That's, you know, number of surviving, you know, kids or grandkids. Okay. So, so that's slightly different. And so what, what gets optimized kind of depends on, on the process. And one thing that we, we talk about a lot in the book is, is a, a third kind of optimization process, which is um, like learning processes, either individual learning, like reinforcement learning, or social learning, like you learn from imitating others. And that optimization process optimizes something slightly different from either biological fitness or happiness or profits. Uh, and, and so, you know, yeah, it takes maybe, maybe there's an interesting philosophical discussion we had about what's being optimized, how do you figure it out, what's doing the optimization. But I guess key to our thesis is just that something is doing the optimization and that's going to be optimizing something that we can kind of decipher. And that might you know, then you can apply the tools of game theory and that might help you understand all sorts of other things that would have been puzzling about human behavior, including our weird beliefs and preferences. That, that's the, the thesis and that's, that's how we're using game theory. No, very interesting. Yeah, so you have this example. Um, What was it? Was it the hawk and... Well, I can't believe I slipped my mind. Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about? What, what is it? Sure. Yeah, the hawk dove model is another... There it is. Really, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
so it's a fairly simple model. Um, and so in the book, we, we kind of, we start with some background philosophy, like what I just gave. And then we, and then we go through simple canonical models, like, like the hot dog game. That's one of the, the, the simpler ones. Um, and, and we kind of build up to, to harder and maybe somewhat more original models as the book goes on. But anyhow, the hot dog game, uh, this was initially discussed by John Maynard Smith, uh, this uh, evolutionary theorist. And what he said was, well, look, animals often, um, you know, fight over things like pieces of land or, or potential mate or, or, or a piece of meat. And, um, you know, you can m model that. What's the simplest way to model that? Well, I don't know, something like there's this scarce resource it has value B. And then uh, if we get in a fight, I don't know, let's, in the simplest case, we have an equal chance of getting the object. And uh, maybe uh, we each get hurt and pay some cost C. Okay. Um, and if I fight and you don't, you run away, then I get it and neither of us gets hurt. And if you fight and I run away, then, then you get it and neither of us gets hurt. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a very, very simple game. You can write it down, you know, as a two by two payoff matrix. You can calculate the Nash equilibria very easily. Like what, what's optimal for me to do given what you do and vice versa. Nash equilibria just is like a fixed point to that. It's, it's some, some specification of how we both behave such that neither of us would benefit from, from doing anything else. And so in this game, so long as the value of the, the contested object is uh, not too large relative to the cost of fighting, then the optimal thing to do is for me to fight if I expect you to acquiesce mm -hmm. and for you to fight if you expect me to acquiesce. Um, mm -hmm. So there's two Nash equilibria here and they're, they're kind of asymmetric. One of them, I get the object and neither of us fights. One of them, you get the object and neither of us fights. And, and, you know, you can kind of think through what makes those Nash equilibria. Well, you know, I said that the value of the object can't be too big relative to the cost of fighting. So if I expect you to fight, I don't want to fight too because it's just not worth it. And if you expect me to fight, you don't want to fight too because it's just not worth it. Okay, so they're both Nash equilibria. Um, and, but, you know, this game, as simple as it is, you know, it took me like two minutes to describe it to you guys. It, it has some really counterintuitive implications that Maynard Smith used to explain something really puzzling biology. And we use it in our book to, to explain some puzzling things about, about human nature. Okay, so, so, so the really interesting thing about this simple game is which equilibria um, we play totally depends on expectations. Um, so even though the expectations you know, might have nothing to do with the payoff matrix. So, so I said, let's assume the value of the object's the same to both of us. The chance of us winning if we get in a fight is the same, you know, the cost of fighting, all those are, are assumed to be the same. I, I, uh, um, and yet, if I expect you to fight, I'm going to acquiesce. And if you expect me to fight, you're going to acquiesce. Okay, so, so, so expectations are kind of self-fulfilling. And that tells you that arbitrary things um, uh, can dictate who, uh, who, who fights and who doesn't, and who gets the object and who doesn't. And so in Maynard Smith's case, that was the solution, a key puzzle of, of what what is animal territoriality? Why would some animals kind of fight vigorously to defend a, a piece of land that they arrived at first? Well, you know, a newcomer would, would see them there and run away. Why would they do, put so much effort into marking their territory? Like, you know, dogs peeing when they walk by a fire hydrant. So, so you, you know, we have all this territorial behavior in animals. It doesn't make much sense. You know, why don't they just, why isn't it just might makes right that bigger animal wins? Right. Um, no, it's first arrival uh, dictates who wins. And so Maynard Smith said, okay, that's just because first arrival is one of these things that, that sets expectations that they both expect the incumbent to be the one who fights, then both of them 
best respond by acting accordingly and making that self-fulfilling. And so, so that's, hmm. that's his explanation for how animal territoriality works and, and how it evolved. Um, and so we argue that, that there's kind of some analogous stuff going on in humans. And you can use this to understand all sorts of interesting things about how we think about property rights, how we think about fairness. Um, that, uh, you know, in, in many cases, so long as everybody kind of expects rights to work this way or fairness to work this way, then, then people best respond by acting accordingly. And so, you know, even though we don't really think that there's like some platonic truth to like what's right or what's fair, we think that, that oftentimes th these ideas can be self-fulfilling um, in the same way that territoriality can. And the, the simple game of fucked up can help us understand that. Right. So interesting. And would you say that some of those sort of rights have become internalized in the sense that we feel, I mean, it's very hard to argue for irrationally unless you're like looking to some sort of divine presence. But would you say that maybe there's a possibility that we evolved a sort of sense that these rights are right, where people would say, well, I mean, I can't prove that there's an objective morality, but it feels this way because in a way, without that part of that part of us that internalizes it, it's very hard for us to actually act on those kind of basic principles because, you know, we have to actually feel that they're real. They have to make sense to us in terms of how we see ourselves, in terms of what we see our community unity as and again in terms of how we see objective truth yeah yeah so I, I would argue that that um as opposed to the the men in the boardroom who are consciously calculating what to do we, we argue that most of the examples we're giving in the book have come about through either biological evolution or, or some kind of learning process and, and and so when that's the case when the optimization is coming through learning or evolution it, it, it almost by definition has to be deeply internalized. It almost by definition won't be things that we're consciously aware where they're coming from. Instead, there'll be things like gut intuitions, uh, emotional reactions. Um, and, you know, in many cases, there'll be, you know, we'll have, we'll have socially learned these kind of like rhetorical arguments and these kind of um, when, uh, um, these, these justifications. Um, but, uh, um, you know, uh, will end up deeply feeling those things, not because they're true, but because they tend to get socially reinforced because they, 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 they lead you to behave in a way that's kind of consistent with the incentive structure that you're around, with the social pressures that you're around, with, with what's Nash equilibria. That, that's at least the, the argument that we make. I love it. So it's like, it feels like it's true because it's been reinforced and pretty much you have a society that consistently and chronically says that this is the right thing to do. It kind of becomes weird in a way to start questioning it. So sort of like, there's this kind of internal, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but this kind of internal part of you, that maybe an internal critic that would say like, why would you doubt that? Like, it seems so evident. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe there's a, a longer philosophical discussion to be had, but, but I think that that's, that's the case with, with a lot of, um, you know, our morality and a lot of things that we kind of treat as like platonic truths. I mean, even our sense of like aesthetics, like it's, it's kind of, uh, you, you know, uh, um, it's, you know, philosophers can try, but it, it's, I, I think rather hard to make like a logical argument for like where this stuff is, it, it, how this stuff is like real or true in any sense, other than, you know, it's what evolved or what gets socially reinforced, um, which, which isn't to say that it's not going to feel very true. Um, uh, but yeah. And it kind of seems like that's all that really matters, that it feels. Yeah, I mean, to take religion into into account, right? I mean, uh, essentially, you can't necessarily argue that different beliefs in a particular religion are true or not, but people will use that to reinforce uh, different uh, social norms in, in sort of a rational way, even if those things that in themselves are not uh, rational or true. Right. right? 
Right. I actually love that. Yeah. Because uh, Moisha talks about that. So Moisha, right. You talk about like the difference between sort of objective truths as opposed to practical truths, like practical truths that kind of serve the society at large. Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, I, I mean, I, I think, um, and maybe this will take us a, a little bit farther from the material in the book, but it's an interesting conversation nevertheless. But yeah, I think that when, when something is um, uh, true in like a logical sense, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work quite differently, right? Like we'll expect there to be like some kind of internal logical coherence. But, you know, if it's driven by social pressures and by, you know, evolutionary pressures, uh, that's no longer necessarily going to be the case. And so, you know, when it comes to like our moral intuitions or our sense of rights, like we can try and squeeze them into like logically coherent systems. But there, there's no reason to think that our evolved intuitions or our learned intuitions are going to actually like satisfy some system of axioms um, uh, that, you know, are going to be uh, coherent. Um, and, and, and so I think that's kind of one difference that you might have between something that's a practical truth versus like, you know, a, a real truth in like the sense that like, you know, mathematical statements can be true. Um, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, the practical truths don't have to be consistent. Um, they also like, you know, the, the axioms that we will try to like satisfy, you know, I'll try to convince you, for instance, that I that like the uh, uh, political stance or my moral behavior is consistent with, I don't know, the, a sense of fairness or equality that like I would never treat people differently depending on their skin color, let's say, um, or, or their race or their, or, I mean, sorry, or their sexual orientation or their gender. Like, like you know, I, I might try to convince you of those things. Partly because like there are strong social norms enforcing that. Partly because I have friends who who, who might be black or or or, or uh, uh, gay, and like mm -hmm. you know I don't want them to feel you know bad or discriminated against. And so sure. so I have all sorts of interest in like taking on these principles of of equality and, and and fairness and stuff like that. But but if it's coming from these kind of social pressures, that's going to lead me to take on these principles more so when I face those social pressures. And so so things like, you know, who's in your social network is going to matter quite a bit. Um, and like, uh, uh, um, that's very different from if these were like truths that were coming out of like, you know, logic or information, because that, then I'd be much less sensitive to like, well, do I have gay friends? Or am I in a society where these kind of norms are enforced? And so so at least a very different predictions about who's going to take on which kind of moral stances and, and um, uh when, when they'll when they'll really believe in them right so it's like you're kind of making a case for, for practical truths where the idea is that it's not sometimes so i mean as best as we can we want objective truths but sometimes it's like if it kind of helps to broad it's a utilitarianism essentially if it helps to broader community it would make sense like alan how he mentioned uh kind of religious ethics it would make sense why we, we would hold on to them because if we're thinking about just like uh maybe not evolution per se but at least cultural evolution mm -hmm. where the idea is that it's helped the community thrive yeah yeah, um, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I think that's true that religion, religions can help communities thrive and moral systems can help communities thrive. I mean, I guess we should also admit that, uh, you know, they both can also have uh, negative ramifications. And, and uh, you know, uh, I guess it's a, maybe a longer discussion of when they end up leading us to do good versus bad. But certainly moral systems, um, you know, have been used to justify slavery and, you know, the Holocaust and things like that. So so we, we can use, you know, uh, the social pressures can leave it, lead us to do bad. And even in those cases, just as well, people develop, you know, these philosophies and these, you know, rhetorical arguments to justify it. And 
Uh, um, so yeah, it's not, it's not obvious to me that it always leads to, to good, but it, it is obvious to me that it's human nature. It's what we do. And it, it seems more sensible than saying that these things come from like platonic truth. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, uh, actually go ahead. Yeah. I have a, another question, but Wait, it's related to this or something else. Well, actually it's related to the book. I, I was oh, actually sure. curious, um, how you and, uh, Eris sort of, uh, met up and, and decided to, uh, uh, create the book together. Uh, what sort of went into that? Yeah. Sure. Uh, um, so, Eris uh, and I were in uh, grad school together uh, at the University of Chicago, both studying economics. Um, and um, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, over the years, uh, I had always kind of had this bent of, of trying to look at things from a, what we call a functional or an ultimate perspective, which is, you know, thinking about beyond what we consciously what consciously motivates us, but like the evolutionary or learning processes that shape it. So I, I must have read Dawkins in high school or something. And, you know, I, I, I've always had that perspective. And over the, the first few years, you know, in, in econ grad school, you don't learn that perspective. You, you know, you, you learn people optimize given their preferences, not where their preferences come from. Mm -hmm. And so we would often have these debates and stuff. And also I was quite dissatisfied with like how economists and especially behavioral economists like try to explain weird puzzling uh behaviors and preferences um so you know we had these debates uh, for a while and um eventually uh uh we decided to uh you know develop some material together and pitch a class to mit and so we we did that i don't know back in 2012 or 2013 on this topic but but the goal was already uh you know to make this like a life's agenda and, and uh, you know a book of using game theory tools and thinking about the incentives that that non-consciously shape shape our behavior could explain our, our weird beliefs and preferences um, mm -hmm. yeah and and, and then so how does something like that happen right because i mean you talk about sort of passions right and how sometimes people are obsessive and sometimes they're driven to fulfill their passions but i mean there's always this question of number one how do these passions even arise and then number two how do even people become obsessive so how does game theory help us sort of begin to look at some of these issues yeah. So, so we discuss passions a bit, um, I guess, both in the intro and in our last chapter, we come back to it. And we use it as an example that actually doesn't need game theory, but it does need this kind of functional uh, perspective of thinking about the, the underlying incentive structure that, that we're not consciously aware of. And so, so we kind of use it to highlight that just taking that perspective on its own is already an important leap. And then once you add game theory, you, you can get some, some even additional insights, but, but even that can get you things like passion. So what we try to argue there is, you know, there's a lot of it, like you said, a lot of individual variation and in like who's passionate about what and, you know, how passionate we are. Um, and there's also all sorts of psychological evidence that passions kind of work in, in weird ways. Um, you know, there's things like when, when you get uh, when you get an, a sense of flow where you're like you're just stimulated enough, then then it's like really pleasant and, and uh, productive. Um, you know, there's a sense that if like if you don't uh, uh, if you face too many hurdles when you're young, you kind of give up and, and, and lose, you know, you get learned helplessness and, and you mm -hmm. stop trying. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of interesting studies like this. Um, so, you know, the question is, how do our sense of passions develop? Who, who gets which passions? Okay. So the key insight um, is, again, just thinking about like the underlying incentive structures that might shape our, our learning processes that might, might affect what, when we learn to be passionate or what we learn to be passionate about. And it's just like, okay, well, well, think about it for a minute. What kind of rewards do we get uh, uh, when we are passionate and what kind of costs do we pay? And so if, if you just kind of think about that, well, when you're passionate, you end up devoting 
an inordinate amount of time to developing a skill set. You know, the, the the proverbial, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. Obviously, that, that number is made up, but uh, the point is well taken, which is to become, wh when you are passionate, you do end up devoting a lot of time. And passionate people end up often sacrificing other things in their life, like, like, like their family or their health or, or, you know, hobbies. Like, you end up becoming, like you said, obsessive. And so, so that, that's the cost. Um, uh, and so we shouldn't, all be passionate, um, you know, despite some pop psych books that might say, you know, we should, we should all just like, you know, develop more grit. Like there's a cost to that, which is when you're, when you're gritty, you're not giving up, which means that you, you're not being more balanced or moving on to other things. You're, you're, you're investing that 10,000 hours, which may or may not be worth it. So when is it worth it? Well, uh, um, uh, the benefits might be, and again, these aren't the benefits that we're like consciously pursuing. I'm thinking about what might shape our, our learning processes. Well, learning processes are going to be responsive to like social rewards, like whether you get prestige and end up with a legacy and, uh, uh, you know, a strong social network and even, you know, financial remuneration. So, so uh, you know, if you develop this skill set, will it give you those things? Well, if, if this is something that you can particularly excel at, so, so you have kind of like a unique ability, if it's an economy of superstars, so, so it's kind of a, a market where like the top, 1% is really, really rewarded. And you have a chance of being in that top 1%. And, and um, you know, if it's the kind of thing that your your society, you know, tends to value. So, you know, maybe during the Cold War, playing chess would be worth it but in the US, but not Go, because people, you know, it's not like we get huge prestige out who plays Go in the US. I mean, in other cultures, yes. But in the US, it, it wasn't a big deal. Chess was how you showed off you're really smart and how our country showed off that we, we could beat the Soviets. Uh, um, uh, and so Bobby Fischer really invested in learning chess. But not only that, his society rewarded it, and it had that economy of superstars effect. But he got a lot of signals when he was young that he was he was exceptional at it, and he had a chance of being the world's best. And that may have made it worth it for him to to sacrifice other things like like a, a social life, like um, uh, you know his uh, his health and things like that. And so so he did end up devoting all of his time and effort into this. And, you know, it, it also is going to be responsive to things like your, your outside options, your opportunity costs. And, you know, in, in Bobby Fisher's case, as with many kind of um, exceptional people, he didn't have too many outside options. His, his, uh, his social skills, he didn't just sacrifice two play chess. He, he wasn't born gifted in that dimension. Um, and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, that's often the case is, is people, people end up becoming super passionate when they also don't have too many other options um and, and so you know if if you could be great at everything you'll become a renaissance man and you won't become super obsessive and so you know the idea is that we'll subconsciously pick up on these things these cues of what we're good at of what outside options we have what our society rewards how much of an economy of us and and that will shape how passionate we are and so we go through in the last chapter you know some uh, individual case studies that this might fit the psychological evidence on how passions work that this might fit and mostly it's just meant to be like a case study illustrating how you can use this thought process of thinking about like the, the costs and benefits that, that shape our learning processes and use that to explain puzzling things about our psychology. Wow, I love that. That makes me think of Moneyball, which is like legit one of my favorite <laughs> movies. So remember the, so Moshe, have you seen Moneyball? 
Yeah. yeah. So, and I'm sure you might have even read the book too. So, the Billy Bean character, I mean, that was like such a terrible story in the beginning because here you had everybody sort of gassing him up and telling him how wonderful he was going to be, how great of a baseball player he was. When the Mets ended up sort of drafting him, um, they told him, like, yeah, you know, kid, you're going to be in the starting lineup right away. We've never seen anybody like you, you know, so on and so forth. And of course, he gives up the scholarship to go to Stanford. And then, I mean, it kind of it doesn't ruin him because obviously things work out well in the end. And, you know, the movies are kind of, it's not a tragedy, it's a great story. But still, like, you have this person who legitimately thought he was going to be not only just a successful baseball player that's one thing he he was on the road to being a hall of famer it seemed and everybody was wrong and you know i wondered like how many times does that happen where you have an entire community of people kind of reinforcing you over and over again like let's say and you're not a bobby fisher and it doesn't work out and then what happens mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think that highlights the cost of of being super uh uh focused and passionate and obsessive which is, it is risky. And, um, uh, you know, in his case, he really, he wanted to go and get a good college education. And, and he had, he had some good options of, of uh, uh, playing uh, uh, college, uh, uh, on a college team. And he gave that up. Um, uh, and uh, in his case, it looks like that was a mistake. At least that's something that he said that he regretted. Um, you know, he wanted a more balanced life with a more balanced education and, and, and um, yeah, that's something passionate people often give up on. Um, uh, and yeah, that's that's kind of that's that kind of highlights that there really is a cost and, you know, grit doesn't come for free. Right. Yeah. And going back to the example of, uh, well, the Dove, um, what would you call it? The Dove Hawk game, right? So how do we determine what's valuable? Because initially you said, you know, the person wouldn't fight because for, let's say for that person, it wouldn't be valuable too. So the fight, the cost wouldn't be worth it. But how do we determine that? How do we determine if the cost of, let's say, fighting or whatever it is, any sort of effort, just generally speaking, how do we do, how do we determine if like, let's say, whatever the outcome is, if it's worth the effort? How does that happen? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, again, um, this is kind of a, a different calculus than what we're consciously thinking about. Like what would, you know, what should I do to make myself happiest? You know, is it, is it worth it to get married or, or to stay single? I, I don't know. Like that's, that's something you might think about, uh, you know, before an important decision. And like the calculus that goes on there is, is interesting and, and worthy of studying, but, but let's just be clear that that's, that's not quite the calculus we're describing in this book. This book is talking about the, the non-conscious calculus that shapes which beliefs and preferences develop. Um, and that calculus is, is, is going on way behind the scenes at like, um, uh, you know, how reinforcement learning, uh, our, our learning module and our brain kind of updates, uh, the things that we like and the things that we, we intuit. And so how that calculus works, I mean, I guess we can, uh, somewhat just guess at, I mean, I mean, maybe there are some neuroscientists who will claim that you can literally measure, I don't know, dopamine stuff. And, and okay, but uh, um, I, I, we don't do that. What we do is we say, okay, uh, we, can, we can make some pretty educated guesses, at least on uh, qualitative things. So we can say there's gonna be a handful of things that we would have evolved to pursue that would have evolved to kind of shape our learning processes that empirically seem to shape what we learn to like and do. Um, and we can kind of list some of those and usually just having a sense of what those are will be enough to explain a lot of puzzling things like our passions. Um, um, so, you know, on that list would be things like uh, uh, um, safety and health and security, but also social things like having, a, you know, having friends and allies 
and a good reputation and, and a legacy. Like those are all things that seems to be the case that we kind of evolved to pursue and can act as, as intrinsic rewards in their own right that can shape other things that we like. So, you know, if you happen to be obsessed with, I don't know, collecting stamps, like mm-hmm. that's not something you were born with. Like, like there's no gene for collecting stamps, but right. like presumably that gets tied to one of these other things. Like it, it somehow helps you achieve status or, or, or legacy or, 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 or some kind of, you know, helps your social network or I don't know, maybe you expect to sell them one day and get money. And, you know, so resources might be on that list too. Um, mating opportunities might be on that list too. So I don't know, there's like seven or eight things on this list of things that we, we would have evolved to pursue that kind of shape what we, what we, what we learn to like, like stamp collecting. Um, uh, and, you know, exactly how much, how we add and integrate these different, you know, things we evolved to pursue, like how much does a, a mating opportunity weigh out against, you know, health? Like, I don't know, like, like uh, all I know is for these models, we don't really need to like know those numbers. It's not like we need to be able to measure like the exact, like uh, underlying payoffs you get from each. What we need to say is, okay, those are things clearly that evolved to, to matter and that can shape what we like. And that's enough to already explain all sorts of puzzles, um, uh, which is having the, without having the quanti- ability to quantify them. Um, that's gonna be enough with, with some added tools, like, you know, key econ concepts like, I mentioned when it comes to passions, I mentioned like competitive advantage, economy of superstars, opportunity costs. Like those are key concepts. Again, I don't need to quantify anything. They're going to give us a lot of a lot of power to predict stuff and to explain stuff. And in the, the game theory chapters, we can use simple things like the hot dev game. I don't need to know the exact value of B or the exact value of C to know that like, well, expectations can be self-fulfilling in these kind of contexts where people might be fighting over resources. Um, I don't need to know exactly how valuable those resources are to be able to, to, to make that claim. Um, and so I, I think to some extent, that's kind of the power of this way of thinking is you don't need to quantify things to be able to, to understand and explain things you just kind of need to, to have some, some powerful tools. Um, so it's sort of like just knowing that intrinsically status is important to the vast majority of human beings, if not all of them. That's right. That'll be, that, that'll be, that'll be enough. And then you could add some models, you know, the game theory models will help you predict certain things about how status works. So for instance, we have a chapter that we, we talk about common knowledge. You know, what matters in, in, in settings where coordination is important, it doesn't just matter that you can tell things. It also matters that you can tell, that I can tell, and so on. And so, so that brings into play things like public and symbolic uh, uh, gestures. That bring, brings into play things like plausible deniability and categorical uh, distinctions. You know, these, these key, key ideas come out of the fact that common knowledge matters in settings where coordination matters. And status is very much coordinated. Like, you, you can't have high status just in front of one person. Like, people all kind of have to agree on the fact that you are status or else no individual wants to treat you highly if nobody else does. Okay, so status really requires coordination, which means that things like symbolic acts and public acts are going to really matter. Plausible deniability will also, so so if you do something that could be harm your status, but there's some deniability, uh, you know, like I, I give you a way to save face, that'll that'll hurt your status a lot less. Okay, so, so you know, yes, all I need to know is that you want status like every human being, and then we can add some game theory, like, okay, for status, common knowledge is going to be relevant. That's going to already give us a lot of predictive and explanatory power. Do you want to say something? Uh, no, no, no. Just, of course, the tag that, of course, like showing your, uh, you know, you have a nice watch or something like that uh, mm-hmm. shows you have status. Like that's one coordinated way. Mm-hmm. Uh, tipping in front of other people, right? Something like that, of course, mm-hmm. right? Um, one thing that I find very interesting is that uh, since we have a sort of a predisposition evolutionarily uh, towards egocentricity, uh, survival. Um, uh, what's fascinating to me is that 
because this sort of is intrinsic to us. This is something that just happens sort of automatically. Uh, I mean, it seems that, especially in when it comes to um, mutually assured destruction in relation to that, right? It seems that there's we've been at this game of like sort of this, um, you know, uh, of course, we're just trying to, of course, whoever has the bigger stick, you know, holds the most power. And, uh, and that's why everyone sort of accumulates uh, 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 nukes. So this way, you know, nobody... Uh, will you know go to war with each other as far as that goes i'm wondering i mean is there is there an end to this sort of uh, that game right in the sense that i mean how long can we keep doing that right because as as technology sort of exponentially uh gets more and more advanced it's not just the people who like who are used to having nukes will have the nukes like russia america china and so on I mean, we might get at some point when it becomes sort of easier to uh, create these sorts of weapons or even weapons that are orders of magnitude above that, right? It, it could get into the hands of other countries, let's say. Or like North Korea. Be, not even just North Korea. It could be other countries as well. I, I was just wondering, I mean, could, knowing that we have this sort of predisposition towards egocentricity and survival, is there any sort of a way, and I know this is a hard sort of a question to ask, it's even hard to even for me to formulate as you can see right uh but is there any way that we could sort of structure things in a way that um takes us away from that sort of win-lose dynamic like zero sum, right? yeah towards sort of a a win-win dynamic um I, i've heard these concepts and i don't understand it uh very well but this concept of what's called game a a finite game and then game b something called the infinite game and um out of curiosity just before i go any further uh have you heard about these concepts like game a game b probably uh, imagine yeah. i i guess i heard about this this book that you're referencing but i haven't read it uh and i, I don't think that's a mainstream concept i think it's something that this one author was was pitching uh, and so so maybe i should be more familiar with his work um but uh maybe you can explain it because i'm not i just fair enough the no no fair enough so i was just wondering if there's any way that uh we could sort of use game theory in order to structure uh, things in a way where maybe we, um, how should I put this? I think less... I understand. Oh, please. Yeah. Go, go for it. Yeah. Thank you. If you, if you mm -hmm. see kind of where I'm going with this, it's very yeah. hard to, to parse. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess like my underlying assumption and maybe it is, uh, quite, uh, you know, pessimistic is that humans, even if we have the ability to develop complicated moral codes and and as individuals we can be, become highly principled um uh that you know these things are only there when the incentives are there for it and and uh when there are incentives to, to cheat um or, or or change your morals um people people find a way um and and so like there is no innate goodness there, there isn't like you know some some white angel that's like pushing us along but there is it's like if you have the right incentive structure people will develop uh, where people get rewarded for having good morals they'll have these morals but they'll also look for loopholes and even if they're not consciously aware of it we're really good at finding loopholes and really good at finding ways to justify doing things that are selfish um and uh you know no matter how developed our moral code is uh we still end up doing all sorts of like pretty evil things so you know we still uh, you know eat animals and like the amount of suffering we cause animals is probably more than they've ever experienced you know beforehand 
um, mm. because now we have this like industrialization process. You know, what happened in the Holocaust and with like African American slavery um, was like far worse than I think, I think by most people's accounts, you know, other genocides that have happened and other, you know, slave societies that have ever, ever existed, like these things, you know. So in some sense, we're quote, getting better. We've developed some morals that we like, but like, okay, uh, we just had, you know, uh, in the last century, the biggest genocide and, uh, you know, post enlightenment, post, you know, the American founding fathers that we're so proud of, we had the biggest slave society. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and like post, you know, all of our morals that we claim to have right now that are so great. Um, yeah, we still we still do what we do to animals and uh, we still have inordinate amounts of inequality. And, you know, OK, I, I mean, we can list all the evils. There's a lot. True. And it's not clear we're better. And it is clear that we're very good at finding loopholes. And it's, it's clear that there's also always people looking for them, um, both the everyday person. So, you know, Dan Ariely's book talks about how, like, everybody finds ways to cheat in small ways that they can get away with. But then there's also Donald Trump's who, you know, are, are constantly looking for holes in this or, or Putin's who are looking for, for, for gaps in the international order that they can take advantage of. And, and those, those people are always going to be there. And, you know, there's no, I know I'm being a pessimist and I'm not yet answering your question, but, but there's no guarantee that we'll have a democracy that's secure against Trump's or that we'll have an international order that's secure against Putin's. And uh, I'm, I guess, somewhat, like, like I, I think there's some truth to claims like from, uh, Steve Pinker, Better Angels of Our Nature, that like we seem to be getting somewhat better over time. But there's, I don't know, there's really no guarantees. Like I, I, I'm not I'm not that certain American democracy is going to last or, you know, our, our modern uh, world order where, where nations don't start wars, aggressive wars against each other, that that norm is going to be maintained. And so so I am somewhat pessimistic. Um, the, the, the best I can say is, uh, you know, you want good incentive structures. You want you want to strongly enforce these norms. You do want when, when Putin invades a, a, a sovereign nation without just cause that, that he gets heavily sanctioned. You want people like Putin, uh, like, like Trump to, to, to be impeached, to go to jail, to not get reelected. You want, you know, checks and balances to be, to be made more secure. Um, uh, uh, and like, you know, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to pull that off. But, but uh, I guess I'm also, <laughs> I'm also somewhat pessimistic in that there's nothing in nature that guarantees a positive outcome. Uh, the best we can hope for is to, to try and create a good incentive structure. Uh, I'm of that uh, perspective too. I'm actually, if some people uh, who listen to the podcast take me as a uh, optimist, I definitely am in, in many cases, but I am very pessimistic when it comes to human nature. And then, so I, I do think it is, I agree with you for sure, as far as uh, inventing different sort of in incentive structures or systematizing it and then finding the right way to sort of do that uh, quote unquote right way. Um, I, I find that interesting, like that particular point. If there's a way to sort of figure out how to systematize this in a way mm -hmm. that could maybe uh, change things for the quote unquote better, right. you know, it, taking into the account, you know, how we are as people. Right. And mm -hmm. what's interesting about that, like thinking it through, it seems like there's such a difference between it's, and I even mean this in like communities it, between like short-term and long-term optimization, because if you think about, let's say like slavery, for instance, right. So short-term, obviously, I mean, a lot of white folks got rich off of it. That was the point, right. It sort of, it sustained the economy in the South, especially. Um, so, but then if you think about it in the long-term, it sort of makes you wonder, like, didn't you think that there would be mass rebellion? And I guess the answer is no, they probably figured like we'd take care of it or we'd figure it out or whatever sort of, 
of like delusional kind of wishful thinking or motivated reasoning was involved. But it's so interesting because I guess I would wonder with game theory, right? Are we mostly focusing on short-term or long-term optimization or somehow a mixture of both? Sorry. <laughs> no, I was going to say it's automatic. We're not like consciously, uh, I mean, some things we're consciously optimizing for, mm -hmm. but uh, I'm going to stop and of course, let, I'll let you talk, of course. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree that it, the calculation is, isn't usually going on consciously. And, uh, but I think there's still a question of like, is our non-conscious calculus like somehow short-sighted? Right. And, and I yeah. guess I could imagine some instances where it might be, where, where uh, you know, if we're just like learning from social imitation, uh, we, can, we can end up, you know, like lemmings, you know, uh, uh, um, doing something that, that seems, to, seems to work for a while, but then leads us all off a cliff. Um, I guess that's possible. And you do see instances like this in, in biology too, where, where like biological evolution leads to, you know, local optima that end up being quite bad. And, you know, you can get species hitting dead ends that way. So, so yeah, conceivably, uh, there, there could be this problem. But I, I don't know, my, my sense is also um, that in many of these cases, we claim that like, well, if only they knew better, they would have chosen the right thing. But I, I don't know, my, my sense is like uh, the slave traders, for instance, or, uh, you know, uh, the people who are supporting the Nazis or the people, uh, you know, the Republicans today. Like, I think, I think in many cases, you know, I don't know, there's, there's strategic ignorance. So they're choosing not to realize, you know, the, the, the slave owners in the South chose not to realize the humanity of the people they were enslaving. But, you know, that was, that was willful ignorance. And it wasn't that hard to like, you know, they were living with these people, they, they could tell. Um, you didn't have to read Harry Beecher Stowe to know that they felt pain. Um, like, it, uh, it, it's not hard to, to tell that Black people have the same uh, abilities and, and, and emotions as others and that slavery, like, really sucks. Like, mm -hmm. it, it, what, what it takes is, like, a lot of effort to, like, develop, uh, uh, you know, the pseudoscientific ideologies around eugenics that help justify maintaining slavery. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it takes... Um, you know, you know, a whole lot of money and effort invested into into Fox News or, or other propaganda networks to help justify, you know, apologetics around Trump or around the coke industries and, and, and denying climate change. And, you know, that takes a lot of effort. And maybe some people are fooled by it. But but I, I think that like the people who are finding this stuff and like you said, like the, the wealthy white plantation owners who are really benefiting from the slave system, like they, you know, they might not have chosen to think about it so much, but they knew what they were doing was what was uh, self-serving and, and they found ways to justify it. And they, they, uh, um, uh, they put a lot of effort into justifying it. And, and my sense is that like, they just saw it as worth it. And I, you know, I think, uh, you know, the ch like, I'm not sure the right way to say this, but like, I think what they did was evil, but I also don't think that like from a self-serving perspective, it was like the wrong move in the sense that they, they got away with it. Like many of them, uh, you, you know, they lost the war and then they went straight back to Congress the next year. Um, mm -hmm. And they maintained their, their plantation society by another name right afterwards. You know, they didn't have slavery, they had Jim Crow, but they, they still stayed in power. And, you know, staying in power and becoming super rich for 150 years, that's, that's more than most people can ever hope for. And being moral wouldn't have paid off more than that. Um, uh, you know, those people did pretty well and, you know, um, the, the people in the British Empire who, who uh, you know, ran the slavery system there, they, they got bought off by the government. 
Um, you know, and like all the people who helped the Nazis, all the big corporations, you know, in the worst case, they had to change their name after the war. Um, but, you know, they didn't get punished. They, they got they got rich, um, you know. Uh, uh, so, wow, you know, I, I don't. Yeah. And, you know, look, it's it's a little bit hard to predict what's going to happen with, with Trumpism. But, you know, it doesn't look like the people who bent over backwards for him are getting punished for doing so. And uh, it's not obvious that they ever will. Um, and uh, yeah, my, my, my sense is that, unfortunately, I don't think that in this case it's that they're making a bad calculus. It's that the, the incentive structure is unfortunately rewarding them for, for, for this kind of behavior. Right. Well, and yeah, I mean, that's a great way of thinking about it. So what comes to mind and not to compare what I'm about to say to anything close to what you were saying, uh, but like Adam Newman, the WeWork guy. I mean, if you think about it, like this guy got away with murder, obviously, so to speak. Uh, but you had the story where essentially like everything that he was doing, he was taking like for most people, these are unimaginable risks. I mean, kind of the shit that he was feeding his investors and obviously the different financiers. Uh, it was just to, it, to me, it was just insane. If you ever watched any of the documentaries about him or obviously watched We Crash. Yeah to show about him right and then so but he he believed in it right he really believed that he was a unicorn but i mean obviously at the end of the day i mean yes he was ousted but like the guy got 1.7 billion dollars to leave his company so okay great yeah so he's sort of a public pariah but at the end of the day i wonder does it really matter when that's right. 20? yeah i i think that that's right um i think he probably truly believed what he was doing was good but he was highly incentivized and not just like in the long term he ended up getting the rewards for um, overselling, for cutting corners, um, uh, for creating this big charade that was essentially a, a fraud, uh, he got rewarded for doing that. And, and he could tell early on that, like, you know, the way, unfortunately, this is, uh, 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 these kind of um, uh, startup culture works is that oftentimes if you oversell, you get rewarded for that. And if eventually things don't work out, you get a, a, you know, you don't necessarily get punished, not, not enough to, to deter. And like, yes, he's a pariah, but he's a pariah with a lot more money than uh, if he would have stayed at, I forget what his first job was, but uh, he was. Uh, yeah, he sold so like, uh, yeah, the sh the clothes, the kitty the clothes. Shoes. Yeah, with yeah, the, knee, right. the, exactly. the knee, yeah, the knee right. braces or something, whatever they had right. on them. Yeah, uh -huh. right. Yeah. So, so most people would take the pariah plus a billion dollars uh, over over staying at that job. And I'm not saying he consciously thought through that, but. Um, but yeah, the, unfortunately, there are incentives in, in this startup culture to to oversell and to um, uh, uh, structure the organization in a very self-benefiting way and, and not a way that, that helps your workers or, or, or your shareholders. Yeah, and I could even argue the opposite. I would say that even if, let's say, he didn't have to consciously think things through in terms of risk taking, since we're so emotional in terms of like the information that we take in, like let's say with punishment, right? So I'm really sort of big on this. So for me, I tend to make the same mistake over and over again unless I get punished for it. Like I don't mean that like literally, like you know, obviously getting something taken away or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I mean like you know something happens, some negative consequence, and then I remember it, and I'm like, oh, I really don't want to do that again. So even if just like on the other hand, we're not thinking about it in terms of like risk reward, right? If there's no consequence for people like that. Like, so there's, there aren't those conscious cues like in the media or whatever uh, that maybe even become unconscious at some point. But if there aren't those cues saying like, let's say uh, Travis from obviously from Uber uh, and then Adam and then, you know, whoever else, I mean, well, what's it, Elizabeth yeah. Holmes, right? If all of these people aren't getting punished, I mean, you're not going to take mm -hmm. that into your decision-making pro process. If you're starting a startup, if you have a company, that's not even going to be in your consciousness. All you see is a bunch of success and you're like, cool, how can I get that? Mm -hmm. I think that's right. Yeah. And throughout their careers, they're constantly getting positively reinforced for, uh, you know, this, this overconfidence. 
and and that that's feeding into it uh, absolutely and then you know to take that back uh to trump is in i'm, I'm sorry for, for making this no, always, go for it. always about, about him <laughs> um i mean i guess like mo- most americans he's on our mind a lot but um you know like like i don't like I don't think he's some kind of, you know, genius mastermind who like thought through exactly how he's going to like become president when he was a kid. Uh, but I do think he's his whole life been kind of responding to like the, the positive re- reinforcement he's been getting. And, and, you know, if you read his his uh, uh, I think it's, it's his aunt. Um, oh, Mary uh, Trump. Yeah. If you read Mary Trump's book, yeah. she talks about, um, you know, as a kid, when he was a bully, when he was an asshole. He would get positively reinforced for that. That's what his dad, you know, uh, liked and rewarded. And, you know, throughout his whole life, he's been breaking laws and mistreating people and, and, and been a jerk to everybody around him. And every time he does that, he gets away with it. And, you know, you don't have to be a genius to, like, learn from that, that you should be a jerk. Um, and, and you know, he's just kind of responding to the incentive structure. And, and the incentive structure has built the world's biggest asshole. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, I think that that's, that's pretty natural and it's not quite the same as what happened with Adam uh, Newman, but I, I think it's analogous in the sense that like, uh, you know, Adam Newman didn't have to be a genius to realize that there's this like reward structure in Silicon Valley that, that like uh, rewards you for being overconfident and, and uh, for overselling stuff. Um, right. right. And, and I think again, going back to this idea of uh, or this contrast between short-term and long-term optimization, it really makes me wonder, right? If let's say these are, if we can call them games or whatever, if this is sort of how society rewards people, I just wonder how that's been so sustainable, especially if we're thinking about like systems, right? If we're, let's say, thinking about just capitalism, because essentially this is what capitalism is. It's short-term profiteering. It's rewarding people who are kind of what they call sharks, right? I just wonder how it's been so sustained and so sustainable seeing that like these people fall, not only falter over time, but on top of that, they cause significant damage to the vast majority of people, which are just basic, you know, employees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's true. And I guess that's one of the big costs of, of capitalism. I mean, I guess on, on the other hand, um, you know, we, we don't all get rewarded for being assholes. Like some of us get rewarded for, for being principled. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of us get rewarded for being creative and, and for, for, for creating value for society. Right. Um, and uh, um you know, there's a mix and different people take non-consciously are going to take different paths. And, but, you know, uh, Gandhi was also rewarded. He was rewarded with like this amazing legacy and, you know, he wasn't rewarded for being an asshole. He was rewarded for being a good person. Um, and, uh, um, uh, you know, so, so the world also builds up characters like that. Um, and, uh, um, uh, you know, our, our incentive structures are complicated and they, they, they can induce both. But, you know, to the same extent that we, we've, we've motivated people to do evil throughout history, we've also managed to motivate people to, to, um, to do a lot of good. Yeah, absolutely. And so before we wrap up, if there's sort of one big takeaway that you'd want, uh, so let's say the wider audience to have or to know about game theory, what could that be? Well, I, I guess it's just that, um, uh, you know, Econ, economic tools like game theory and thinking about incentives has a bad rap, uh, partly partly deserved because economists maybe like Adam Newman over oversell and are overconfident. Um, uh, but but also because the models are often thought of as like just applying to conscious strategic behavior of like what what people do in a boardroom, and and I think the models have a, a lot of power and thinking about incentives is a lot of power if you think about it also as how it shapes our beliefs and preferences at a non-conscious level. And I would encourage your listeners to, to uh, you know, think about that.
I love that. Mm-hmm. All right, Alan, final questions from Moshe before we wrap up? Yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work and buy the book, of course, uh, where, where could we do that? Well, um, the book Hidden Games, I guess you can find it on Amazon or on iBooks or whatever. Um, uh, uh, they also have it on uh, audio too, audiobooks or whatever. Um, uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter uh, um, uh, at Moshe underscore Hoffman. Um, I guess if you Google my name, uh, Moshe Hoffman, M-O-S-H-E-H-O-F-F-M-A-N, you'll also find my, my webpage and my, my, my work. Um, and yeah, if you have any, any thoughts or questions, if you ping me on Twitter, I'm, I'm pretty responsive there. I love that. Moshe, awesome. thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you so much, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was good chatting. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Yeah. All right. Cool. So uh, that was awesome. Uh, first of all, so everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok. We're also at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell on YouTube, the bell on YouTube. And once again, thanks for watching and see you 